Turn with me to Mark chapter 4, if you would. Mark's Gospel, the fourth chapter. Pastor John this morning is in Israel. Uh, Pastor John and Brian Russell lead a trip every other year to Israel with Faith Community Church. They are 10 hours ahead of us, so it's uh, maybe 7.30 at night roughly there in Israel. They've had a full day and are likely rehearsing the joy of the day and resting together. One of the things that Brian told me was scheduled for today in Israel was a boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. And so this morning we are going to look at a very familiar passage of Scripture, uh, which may be entitled in your Bible by the translators, The Calming of the Sea, or The Calming of the Storm on the Sea of Galilee. Of course, we're hoping that the boat ride that occurred a number of hours ago in Israel with our family there was less eventful than this one. I think you could say it is kind of a blessing, is it not, to consider our beloved in the Lord are on the very lake that we are going to study about at this moment. What a joy. I'm going to read verses 35 through 41 to begin our time. As I do, I'd like you to listen uh, for what is what occurs three times, which is in the Greek, this word megas, you know the word mega, it means great in the widest sense, extremely large, huge, mega. It might be translated when you get to the storm, great or fierce or furious. And so what we're going to study today in verse 37 is the great storm, in verse 39, the great calm, and in verse 41, the great fear. So that's what we're going to look at. Let me read and you'll see it in the text. Verse 35 of Mark 4. On that day, when the evening came, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind. This could be called a great storm. And the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stem asleep on a cushion. And as they woke him, they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. It's the word megas calm, a great calm came. And he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They became very much afraid. A great fear came upon them. And he said, they said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So that is our text this morning. If you are a Christian, if you are a Jesus follower this morning, one who is born again, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, in Him alone, this text of Scripture should cause you to exalt God, which is glorify Him for who He is. It should cause you to exalt, similar word with a U, which means rejoice in God, because we see Him here clearly, fully God and fully man. And you should, regardless of my ability at all to make sense of this text, just by the reading of it and the discussing of it, you should walk away saying like the apostles in the boat, yes, who then is this who calms the sea and saved my soul? So I'll tell you what, before we even get started, when we walk out the door, if you are his, you must be able to say it is unmistakable that Jesus is none other than God, the majestic 
king and the ruler over all nation. That's the one that saved my soul. And so you leave both glorifying and rejoicing in who he is, just from the reading of the text. Now, if you're outside of faith and you've been coming to church for first Sunday or 10 years, but you know you're not a follower of Jesus, then what I'd ask you to do is I'd ask you to lean forward with your mind and pray and pray and continue praying. God, please reveal by grace yourself to me today. Because of all the false religions and all the leaders of false religions that are buried in their graves around the world, this Jesus that you will hear about today is alive. He's not dead in a grave. And he didn't only create the world, but he controls, as we'll see today, all aspects of the world. Every moment of every day has the authority to command his creation and it obeys him. He would be the one that you would want to cry out to save your soul, even today. So let me start by saying what this is not about, because sometimes this teaching is taken and lumped into one really simple sentence that goes something like this. Um, you will have storms in your life. Come to Jesus and he'll solve your storms. You might have storms in your life. Come to Jesus and he'll solve your storms. That isn't the main focus of this text of Scripture. Is it true? Well, yes, come to Jesus and any storm that you possibly have, you'll bring to him. But it isn't the main focus of the story. J.C. Ryle wrote, it is good to understand this clearly. If you're a believer, you must reckon on having your share of sickness and pain, sorrows and tears, losses and crosses, deaths and bereavements. He has undertaken that all who come to him shall have all things pertaining to life and godliness, but he has never undertaken that he will make them prosperous, rich, or healthy. So yes, we will have difficulties and trials, but Jesus is not a vending machine. Remember the old ones where you pulled and something dropped out? Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, but you go pop and drop something right down to the bottom. Were those not the best? So much better than pressing a button today. I mean, that's just the, uh, that is not Jesus. You don't say, this is my problem, pop, and drops exactly the perfect solution that you want. Is he the pit, is he the port in the midst of your storm? Yes. Does he always provide an immediate solution of your choosing and your timing? No. Two of our six children, Katie and Annie, some of you know this. They had the storm of blindness and seizures and lack of mobility and wheelchairs and feeding tubes and cognitive loss. At the exact same age, 22, some eight years and five months and six days apart, Jesus calmed their storm. They took their last breath. They were immediately in his presence. No more storm. Sometimes that's when the storm comes to the end. There are storms that he, he intercedes on every moment of every day that we don't even stop to consider. But he is always at work in our lives. He's always the port in the storm. There's a dear sister here. We've been praying for a brother who lost his vision. He loves the Lord. And he couldn't read his Bible. And she was updating us. He's going to the doctor. He's receiving treatments. Please pray. Please pray. And then after months, what came was a praise. That he had enough vision to use a magnifier and read a large print Bible again. So his blindness, his storm of blindness right here and right now, the Lord had, had, had removed. 
He's able to read his Bible. So yes, we will have storms. We go to him in the midst of our storms. The danger is, if that's all we see here, this becomes a fairly man-centered portion of Scripture. And this Scripture is all about Christ. It's all about the deity of Christ, the power of Christ, and who he is. That's what this is about. Aren't you thankful that you can go to him? We go to him because we know who he is, and it's revealed here in the text of Scripture. A few things to look at. Let's begin right at the beginning, verse 35. It says, On that day, when evening came, he said to them, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in a boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. So it was evening. We see in verse 38, as we read, that Jesus was tired. It was a long day of teaching. If you go back in the context of the gospel there, he'd been teaching and he's tired. There are many testimonies of pastors who go to far off places to teach, to Russia or to China or to Myanmar and other lands. And when they get back on the plane, if they are the type that can sleep, that they'll close their eyes and sometimes spend 12 hours straight, 14 hours straight of sleep, they land, the, the plane hits the ground and they wake up because they're so tired from that time of teaching. A couple Tuesdays ago, we were here for our faith group, 10 a.m. faith group on Tuesdays, and we saw Pastor John walking into this room. He was coming in to record uh, a sermon for our outreach ministry on KFI radio. So it's 10 in the morning, he's coming in here and he's going to, to, to record a sermon. And then, no doubt, back to his office to prepare maybe for Good Friday or Easter Sunday or the devotions he shared this morning in Israel, preparing the classes he'll teach in Myanmar. And when he left his office that day, he didn't go home and kick his feet up and go to Netflix. What he did was he drove to Vallejo and he taught a three-hour class at Cornerstone Seminary. I would imagine there are times where our preaching pastor, if he was on a boat in a storm, could lay his head down and fall asleep on his first breath. Jesus was tired because he was fully man and he was fully God. Jesus had this boat ready back in chapter 3, verse 9. He says, and he told the disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd so that they would not crowd him. So this boat that is in this storm, Jesus called for chapter before. This is a boat he was teaching from. And in the beginning of chapter 4, it says he began to teach again by the sea. And such a very large crowd gathered to him, and he got into the boat in the sea and sat down, and the whole crowd was by the sea on the land, and he was teaching them many things in parables, and was saying to them in his teaching, listen to this, and then he taught. So the boat in the story came about in the third chapter, he taught out of it in the fourth chapter, and note in chapter 36 it says this, isn't this interesting, and other boats were with him. So Jesus is sitting on a boat teaching people sitting on the shore. And no doubt other people on boats were were kind of trying to get close because they wanted to hear what he had to say. And then as Jesus took off, these boats followed him. This is all we know about these boats. It doesn't say whether they stayed with him or they went back to shore. It just said they left with him. So I think we can assume if they left with him when the storm hit, they were right there in the middle of the storm. So when he said, as we read at the beginning, hush, and it became calm, it became calm for them too. Isn't that amazing? This is something called common grace. See, there was a specific grace going on in this story, and that's what Jesus was specifically teaching to his own followers on the boat with him. 
And then for the other boats there, there was this common grace, which is defined this way. The doctrine of common grace pertains to the sovereign grace of God bestowed upon all mankind, regardless of their election. In other words, God has always bestowed his graciousness on all people to all parts of the earth at all times. You've heard this phrase, he reigns upon the just and the unjust. The farmer who loves the Lord, his field gets rain, and the farmer who rejects gets rain. Common grace, that was happening here. So there's specific things happening with the apostles, and then there's this common grace that comes to those on the boats. Aren't you thankful for that? Shouldn't we be of the hardest Christians where we have empathy for those who are broken and blind like we were before we came to know him? And so we look out and we see someone doing well who is just ridiculously anti-God, and we think bad thoughts. Maybe we should pause and say, thank you for your common grace. Because this is the very best moment this person will ever have unless you save his soul. That'd be amazing if we looked at them differently and recognized that he reigns upon the just and the unjust. It also says they took him just as he was. Just as he was. What does that mean? I think it might mean that he was teaching in the boat. And when the boat left, he just stayed in the boat and they went. There was no time to get out of the boat and have a meal and and refresh. Took him just as he was. And then note this. This might be the most important thing to note of the entire time together. On that day, when evening came, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. And they were obedient to his request. So consider this. The apostles were in the will of God, obedient to his command. Jesus said, go over the other side. They said, yes. They headed out on the boat into what would be the middle of the storm while in the will of God. I hope you're tracking with me. They were in the will of God when the storm came into their life. We can spend a lot of time discussing how do we know the will of God. Let me suggest one way. From the context here, there's other ways, right? It's the reading of the scripture. It's the comparing and cross-referencing the scripture. It's listening to the teaching of God's word. It's praying. It's sharpening each other's iron. He uses all that for help us to understand his word. But here's one example here. Jesus said, do it. And they did it. I wasn't a great student of theology. For me, the plain thing is the main thing, as Alistair Begg has said. Jesus said, do it, and they did it. They were in the will of God. What a way to live. He says it, we say, yes, Lord. Sometimes it might be outside of your normal thinking. Sometimes it doesn't match what you would like to do or you think is right. Maybe like a fisherman on a boat going out at night onto a dangerous lake, yet they obeyed and they were in the will of God. And guess what happens? Right in the middle of the will of God, they run into a storm. This is good to know because as humans, when the storm comes, we often ask ourselves, what did I do to create the storm? Or sometimes even worse, we look at the person close to us and say, what did you do to create this storm? But in his providence, he sees to it that certain things happen in our life for his purpose, for our sanctification and his glory. John Piper says this phrase, he sees to it. He sees to it for our sanctification in his glory, even the storms of life. Have you ever heard the joy in Johnny Erickson Tata's voice as she talks about her vision 
of a Job scenario in her life. Have you ever heard this? Do you know who she is? Paraplegic, 55 years, suffers chronic pain, cancer. She says, I have this vision in my mind that Satan comes to God and says, you see that girl down there, the athletic, happy girl? Let me trifle with her a bit. God extends the leash. She dives into a lake and she breaks her neck. Satan comes back and says to God, so this girl still trusts you, but throw some chronic pain in there and she will cave in. God extends the leash. Satan trifles a bit more. Johnny suffers chronic pain. Satan comes back and says, okay, I see what's going on here. You have a quadriplegic in chronic pain and she still trusts you, but give her a life-threatening disease like cancer and she will defame your name. God lets out the leash and here comes the cancer. Here's what she says about that. I am so invigorated. If you haven't listened or seen her face say this, you've got to go find this quadriplegic wheelchair-bound woman. You have to go watch this. I'm so invigorated with this scenario because I am counted privileged enough to make God's name famous, to showcase His grace is real. It is really sufficient. Yes, that it is hard, and I am not a strong person, and I need Jesus desperately. A woman in the will of God. Storms come, right? We're in the middle of God's will. Where else would you want to be when the storm comes? But in the middle of the will of God. Okay, we should probably get to the outline. The great storm. That's where we begin in verse 37. The great storm. For a second, I almost said, do you have any questions? Because I'm so used to being in faith group. And we have such good dialogue. Like, do you have any questions? But never mind, I'm not asking. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much, the boat was already filling up. So that's that word, mega. The windstorm arose. The waves are breaking over the boat. Matthew records the boat was being covered by the waves. Luke says it was filling with water. They were in danger. Their lives were in jeopardy. The words of the three gospel accounts used to describe this storm paint a picture like this. It was nighttime, so it was dark. The storm was sudden, without warning. It was a whirlwind. It was mega. It was large. It was great. It was thrown upon them. It was gusting. It was a storm-like force. It was a wind that was a great squall gusting in great force. That's what was happening on the boat. Now, I've never been to the Sea of Galilee, but I'd like to talk about it for a moment. I plan to have been there, matter of fact, today. I know I've shared this with some of you. On a Saturday night, we, we were going out to dinner, and on Sunday was the planning meeting for this trip. Went to dinner with my daughter Carrie and her boyfriend and the boyfriend's parents. I should have seen this coming. And he got down on a knee and asked her to be his wife, and she said yes. And as we pulled out of the parking lot of the restaurant, I said to my wife, I guess we're not going to Israel this year. Uh, I don't know about you, but there's never enough nickels to put on a wedding and a trip. So anyway, that has nothing to do with the text, but it's my reality. Any sympathy I could gain from you for that would be appreciated. Uh, Or my wife, because I know she would love to be there. So as I was saying, I've never been to the Sea of Galilee, but there is a lot known about this lake and how treacherous it is. It's been studied from before the time of Christ um, because of how treacherous this lake is. Now, if you're new to this story, I I hope I'm not confusing you calling it the Sea of Galilee 
and a lake, but it is called the Sea of Galilee, and it is a lake. It's in the region, as you would imagine, of Galilee. You may have heard the names Capernaum or Bethsaida or Cana. That's in that region. It's the lowest freshwater lake on the planet, 682 feet below the sea level. It's prolific for the production of fish. It's surrounded by mountains. On the west and the northwest, they rise to 1,500 feet. On the northeast and the east, they rise to 3,000 feet to the Golan Heights. That runs 42 miles. The length of the lake is only 13 miles, so it's way down in a bowl. It's 13 miles long, 8 miles wide, so it's tiny as compared to the size of the mountains that are around it. And it's so low, 682 feet below sea level. It's, it's fed by springs as well as runoff from Mount Hermon. It's such a healthy freshwater lake. At one time, it produced for Israel over 50% of its water needs. Isn't that amazing? One lake. Today, because the Israelis are blessed by the hand of God and he uses their wisdom, they built more desalination plants than anybody else on the planet. They're actually selling water now. They have so much water, they're actually selling it. Isn't that amazing? How God protects that little land. So the wind comes down off the Golan Heights, uh, the north side of the lake, comes down in the lake, and the lake is described when it gets hit by this, these winds as a boiling cauldron. Pretty routine most days in the summer. Treacherous place to be on the lake at the wrong time. The winter is worse because the air that comes down is cool and the the lake, because of where it sits, is warm and it turns up the lake into turmoil. That's enough about the lake. We could actually study the lake for a long time. You You can have an interesting rabbit trail, if you like, on the geography of this lake. This isn't a story about a lake. It's a story about the providence of God. The storm that came on this lake in this historical event came at the hand of God. Do you believe that? It's a key statement for all of your walk of faith. The storm came at the direction of God. Do you believe that? There may be nothing more important in this walk of faith than whether we acknowledge Every time there's a storm in our life that God's hand is in it, as John Piper says, he sees to it. If you can break free from that thing where people say, my God would not. My God would not. If you could just flush that out of your thinking and say, my God sees to it. Every moment of every day, his providence is involved There is this question, what do you understand by the providence of God in the Heidelberg Catechism? Here is the answer. The almighty everywhere present power of God, whereby it were by his hand, he still upholds the heaven and the earth, all creatures, and so governs them as herbs and grass and rain and fruit and barren years and fruitful years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Indeed, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand, even the storm. Spurgeon says, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move and the atoms more or less than God wishes. You could give testimony, right? If, if, if the Lord brought you to a place that you say, thank you, Lord, for your providence, it changed your life of faith. It changed everything because you saw him in everything. This storm in Mark 4 came by the hand of God. It was great. It was dark on the lake. Waves are crashing over the boat. 
sinking and dying was a real possibility. God was not surprised by any of these factors. He was the creator of the great storm. And then in verses 38 and 39, we see the great calm. And he got up and rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm, a great calm. So Jesus was sleeping in the back of the boat, fully God, yet fully man, tired and sleeping. Interesting, he was creator of that very lake he was on. He was the creator of the wind that came and blew. He was even the creator of the wood that was used to build that boat, and now he was sleeping in it, fully man. Isn't that amazing? He spoke it all into existence, and then he came fully man, and he slept in that which he created. 1986, they drug a boat out of the bottom of this sea that they believe is from the era of Christ. It's 27 feet long and seven and a half feet wide, so based on the dimensions, I think this was a common fishing vessel a boat for the Sea of Galilee, and it could hold about 15 or more adults. Around 15 comfortably, maybe a couple more, so it makes sense. This would be the exact size boat Jesus was asleep in. Let me ask you a question. Are there not times where you feel in the middle of a storm that he must not see? He must be, as this text says, so to speak, asleep to allow the storm of your life to be happening? Yesterday we heard this great testimony Bart gave me permission. I said, Bart, I want to use this testimony today. He plays the drums right here. He's a faithful servant of the church, going through a really tough time. He had lunch with Pastor Dave during the week, and he said, you know what? Everything's falling apart, but if I could... This one company I worked for was when I was most stable. Things were the best. If that company, they're not interested in hiring me anymore. A couple days later, he goes to his shop, and he's broken. Sad, he's discouraged, and he's just like these guys. Right? These guys said to Jesus, Don't you care? And he was at the place where he was like, I I think I have to ask, is God even in this anymore? Grabs his phone and looks at it, and guess what the text is? The exact company that he told Dave, reaching out, Hey Bart, we'd like you to come back to work for us. Answered prayer. Just like that. Thank you, brother. Bart wasn't the only one this week who asked themselves the question, God, are you still in this? He just got a text response, but he wasn't the only one. Now, these men, like Bart, had been with Jesus. So when this storm came, they had already been with him. They had seen in Mark one twenty seven him... uh, heal the man with the unclean spirit, and teach with authority. They saw it. They were there. In 134 of Mark, it says, there were many who were sick with various diseases and demons. He took care of it all, healed them all. There was a leper. They saw Jesus being moved with pity in Mark 141. That means he saw a man with leprosy and he had compassion upon him. They saw it. They were there in Mark chapter 2 when the paralytic was pushed down through the roof, let down through the roof. And he healed him and forgave him of his sin. They were there when he healed the man's withered hand in the synagogue. And they were the group that Jesus said to in Mark 4.11, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom or the mystery of the kingdom of God. Everyone outside is parables, but you have been had given to you the gift of me revealing the mystery to you. 
This is who them, these men were. And it's interesting, not one of them went over and just kind of shook him and said, excuse me, Jesus, sorry to wake you, but there's a storm. That's not what it describes. It says, they said to him, do you not care that we, plural, are perishing? The word perishing there means to be destroyed. That's what the original word means. Don't you care? Jesus doesn't respond in the text, but I imagine if he was going to respond, he would say, do I care? I'm God. I came to earth. I care. I called you unto me. I care. Do you remember when he called you unto himself? I care. Man, I'm going to go to the cross because I care. I'm going to have victory on the third day because I care. I'm going to hold everything together, even your next breath, because, yes, I care. But in this moment of panic, they said, do you care? Have you ever heard the phrase, the gospel gap? Ever heard that phrase? Some called, sometimes called the then, now, then gap. It's this idea that in the midst of a storm just the midst of life, you can look back and if these men would have had time, but they wouldn't have in this moment, say, yes, then I was justified. Then I will be glorified. But right now, in the moment now, Lord, in the cancer or the job loss or the rebellious teen or the car that doesn't start or my parents who need a caretaker or something called the golden years, right now, I just have to cry out and say, do you care? Have you ever been there? I think you have. The joy is that every single time he stands up and he looks at the storm of our life and he says, hush. Be still, just as he did on the boat this night. He is a good God who so loved the world that he chose to come because he cares. And it says the storm became perfectly calm. A mega calm. The fishermen had seen waves that were upon their boat many times that came by the wind. The fishermen had seen the wind die down and stop and the waves continue. That isn't this word. This word in the Greek says it's to be muzzled. It means instant tranquility. If you imagine a dog that's snapping, if you put a muzzle on it, the instant the muzzle goes on, it stops. It is done. It was mega calm. It was over at this very moment because he said, hush. That's why this is a historical account of the deity of Christ and not so much about me or you. Because he is God and all of those on the boat knew he was God. What a reminder that he is the one who created and controls this earth, this universe. Especially the time where we live where man actually thinks they're sovereign over the planet and more and more works towards their sovereignty of the planet. Colossians says 1 and 1 and 16 and 17 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things in him, in him holds all things together. That is the sustainer of the universe. He is the one who holds it all together. Your next heartbeat, that one, 
And that one is by his choice. Isn't that amazing? So there was a great storm and a great calm. Now, when I went over my notes with my wife this week, she said this. Another one of those notable things. If he had not calmed the storm, he is no less God and no less worthy of our praise. Did you hear that? That's what my wife said. If he had not calmed the storm, he is no less God and no less worthy of our praise. That's from a mom who had a daughter die on Mother's Day. Like, wow. I said, I'm going to get a pen and write that down. I'm going to add that. Because even if the storm doesn't come to a calm, he remains God. Wow. The great fear, look at Mark 14, 41. 40 and 41. He said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They came. They became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this? Who then is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. They had fear of the storm outside the boat, but now they have fear of the reality of the power of God in the boat. And this is probably what you think. It's both the fear of being afraid and reverence and awe. It's that word that blends fear and awe. And no doubt it has to be both. Because if you just saw God do that, you would be in awe and reverence. But your mind might wander to, if he can do that, he knows my most innermost thoughts and secret deeds. He knows it all. Oh, I have some fear. As a father corrects his son, that's how he deals with me. I have some fear. He knows it all. But then I I just fall to my knees and say, and he's the one who creates and controls it all. Awe and reverence. Those in the boat needed a lesson. And it wasn't, I have problems, Jesus fixes my problems. As true as that might be. No, the greater fear... The great fear here leads to what we need most, which is a great reverence for Him, our Savior. The great truth of what happened is it helps us to see Him for who He is, majestic and King of kings and rulers of all. It should cause us to say, I want to be face to face with this one. That happens when you're in His living word. So I would say, read, read, and read some more. If you do, if you read, read, and read some more, You will find yourself in great fear and great trembling and great reverence, just like these men on the boat, because this is what he gives us to know him. You'll be like John in Revelation chapter 1, verse 12 through 18, when he saw Jesus. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand upon me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. He saw him and he fell on his face as dead. Oh, Lord. And the loving Jesus came, laid his hand upon him and said, fear not. Don't you want that relationship? I can guarantee you it doesn't come by just coming on Sunday morning hearing some truth and saying, I agree with that. And then going back to Monday through Saturday, just like everybody else. In Isaiah 6, when Isaiah saw him, 
And he heard, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation shook. He said, woe is me. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. He fell on his face. And the seraphim came and said with the burning cold, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Don't you want to be that way? Like life is tough. You're having a bad day. You know you're walking in sin. You just go lay yourself before him and you go, Lord, you're the one who calmed the sea. And I know you forgive me. I know you've atoned for my sins. Don't you want to be face to face with him? The story of the great storm, the great calm, the great fear centers not on you and me. It centers on you and me walking away face down in awe of God who creates the weather, controls the weather, died on the cross that you might be forgiven. Oh, what a love. So I would ask you this question, do you cherish Christ above all? Maybe a question to spend some time with this week. Do I cherish Christ above all? The storm was not about my problems, even the apostles' problems. I'm so thankful they were saved from the storm, but rather this is a historical account of the majestic one, Jesus. That's the one we're to walk away thinking about today. So as we pray, we join the angels who exalt the Lamb in Revelation 5. With these words to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow before you in awe of your power and your majesty. We stand in awe of the fact that there are many boats on that, that lake that receive the great blessing of the great calm. We thank you that those in the boat with you learned a lesson that was so great it caused them to fear, that just stand in awe and reverence of you. It caused them to go on after your resurrection, once they understood the whole story, once the loop was closed, it caused them to go out and spend a lifetime proclaiming you all the way up until their death at the hands of others, the exception of John. Lord, help us to be men and women who take time to consider your majesty and stand in awe of it, that we might redeem the time that you have given us and the days that we have left to bring you glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.